0: Thanks for joining us again for Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Watson, and we've got a fascinating episode for you today about a unique dermatology case. Here to share her expertise is Dr. Ashley Detweiler, a dermatologist at Pittsburgh Veterinary Dermatology in Pennsylvania. Dr. Detweiler's article, Recurring Puritic Skin Lesions in an English Bulldog, is an interactive case-based quiz intended to help clinicians generate a problem and differential list. We're also going to use today's discussion to learn a little bit more about the diagnosis and treatment of the autoimmune disease pemphigus foliaceus. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Detweiler. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. Before we jump into this case, uh, could you just take a minute to introduce yourself to the audience? Tell us how you got where you are,
1: what got you interested in dermatology? Uh, Sure. Um, I guess... Briefly, but in some detail, um, I'm originally from Florida, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, uh, now I live in Pittsburgh. So uh, the route to get here, um, I went to, uh, grew up and born and raised in Florida, and all through high school, South Florida, and then went to University of Florida for undergrad. Um, started the diversity of everything vet med to get into vet school, um, horses, cows, working at the vet school, everything, and I worked as a um, surgery tech in. Uh, the University of Florida Vet School and then as an oncology tech and that was my first um, real connection to specialty medicine and I did uh, see that early that it was different and it was um, it just had a a different connection that I really liked with clients especially in oncology and then went off to vet school at Mississippi State Um, that was 2006 to 2010 so I graduated in 2010 um, from Mississippi State Vet School And I did know, I guess it was my second year, third year transition that um, in vet school that I wanted to do some externships in specialty medicine and the dermatologist at the um, Mississippi State University did have uh, a unique role and she would come in a few days a week And so that offered some exposure, and then she also encouraged a lot of um, outside externships. So she got me connected with a great uh, dermatology group in um, Auburn and then in Florida. So it just kind of went from there that I started connecting by way of a great mentor in vet school and then uh, went out to meet some of her mentors. And this interest in what I thought was oncology via specialty actually moved into dermatology. And I noticed, uh, during vet school and during those externships that I really loved the connection to the client and the cases, they were puzzles. They were, uh, very unique. They were chronic, uh, and ongoing, but they were, they were ongoing. They didn't have the end, some of the end result you see in oncology. Um, and so I actually thrived in that, uh, experience. And then I, um, was able to get an internship with Mississippi State the year to follow, and uh, then uh, was very, very lucky to immediately match in a um, dermatology residency at Michigan State. So uh, I went from Florida to Mississippi, then to Michigan. Uh, Being a Floridian in Michigan was kind of fun. But I was there for three years. My husband is a veterinarian as well, so he did some training there when I finished. And then we went, um, after three years, we went to... Uh, The MedVet um, Corporation had a clinic in Cincinnati uh, that needed a dermatologist and a radiology resident, so my husband's a radiologist, uh, and we were there for four years, and then after that, I am now on year five in Pittsburgh, so we moved from Ohio, Cincinnati, to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Um, and I've been here, and I've been very happy, and it's been a journey kind of around the country, but only um, east of the Mississippi River, (laughs) But uh, varying degrees of weather and seasons, and now what I thrive in, which is pollen. Uh, (laughs) More so professionally, I thrive in pollen. (laughs) Not personally.
0: (laughs) Well, I think it's wonderful that you kind of recognized in yourself that you love that connection with the clients and, you know, having that, that ongoing relationship because um, that is something that, like you said, dermatology cases oftentimes are, are you're going to be seeing these patients for their entire life. So. Yes. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, like I said, you had written this, um, you know, case-based kind of <laughs> interactive quiz um, mm-hmm. and it starts out introducing hope who is an intact uh, English bulldog. And I encourage everybody at home, we'll go ahead and, and link the, the article in the description, but go take a look at these pictures because this poor sweet dog, um, when I looked at her, I thought, oh my goodness, uh, she seems to have a lot going on. So could you tell mm. us about her presentation, um, You know how she ended up coming to see you on, I believe, what was a second
1: opinion? Yeah. So we, um, we met her during our curbside, uh, COVID appointments, which meant if, if no one had experienced that, um, that we were not face to face with the owner. Um, and, uh, we, we met patients really, uh, in, in a different manner. And, and many times and when we walk into exam rooms that are, uh, that have patients that do look like hope, um, it's, it's, a, it's like a reaction. You're, you're Definitely uh, taken aback, you know, by her presentation. It was very severe. Um, she was diffusely affected, and in this situation, we didn't meet with the owner immediately. But we spoke with her immediately, um, and so, and I guess in a good way, it was um, we were able to evaluate her and 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 just have a moment where we're like, wow, this is a very different case, um, and she was a different case even for the referring veterinarian. Um, so when she came into her referring veterinarian that was close to our uh, South practice that's in Washington, PA. um, She was coming in with the intent to potentially relinquish to euthanize uh, euthanize because the owner, um, I don't remember the extent of what the owner's involvement was with the dog, but I think their goals or someone's goals in, in her history was to breed her or maybe she had been bred. So the history right there, uh, at, at possible relinquishment with the original owner, uh, was a little sparse, but she ended up uh, being relinquished and not being euthanized. And, uh, one of the employees at this, uh, referring practice actually took her and, or, or, um, you know, took her and adopted her. And so now the case was really close to the veterinarian because it was at the clinical time, you know, and, and they did a lot of work, um, on hope and, and recognized very quickly that she had very severe skin lesions. When she came in, she was intact. She was a young dog, presumed age, um, of 15 months, but, um, close at least, you know, approximately close, uh, intact. And she was just, uh, had red swollen, uh severely affected feet more than I've, I've seen in an average patient in dermatology and just diffuse uh, redness and various uh, varying stages of lesions um, and, and other things going on. Third eye prolapse. Um, she had a heart murmur. She, she was painful. She was irritated. Um, and so when she was seen at the RDVM um, her, her primary vet did some workup, especially for um, resistant infection. And um, there was a biopsy completed Uh, before I met her. And uh, I think because she had so much infection, especially resistant, methicillin resistant staph um, infections, when um, she was initially evaluated, I think a, a biopsy just didn't show the detail, potentially didn't show the detail of what she was really dealing with. The other thing is we do have patients that come in with one presentation initially, and then they can present again with a, something different. Um, and so as we learn about hope in the entire presentation, in the entire, um, article, she does have allergies, which is what her initial biopsy, um, with her primary vet reported. Um, but then when she came into us, which was, I think the, the duration, um, of time under their care alone was, uh, A couple weeks, if not maybe a month. It wasn't very long before they referred. Uh, And we we were co-managing, you know, a lot of her care uh, because the owner did work at the, you know, at the primary veterinarian's office. So they did get her in pretty quick. And when we saw her, uh, we were recognizing lesions that just didn't seem allergic in nature, just seemed more severe. Um, And I, I should say also, she had recurrence of issues like her bacterial pyodermas, Um, And despite their efforts, um, she was very, very itchy um, and she just wasn't responding to conventional allergy therapy or, or, you know, just um, kind of the average process that was used, you know, for a severe allergy dog. Also, she was intact. So there was a possibility that she was flaring, you know, um, in conjunction with, you know, her heat cycle. Mm -hmm. So when we met her, there was a lot more going on that seemed to be present on top of things that were initially um, seen at her presentation to her vet.
0: Let's, let's talk a little bit more about that biopsy um, because I've heard that before, not just in Hope's case, but that, you know, there are certain characteristics of pentagus that can make it a difficult diagnosis, even on histopathology. Um, And some of those things like you alluded to are, are secondary
1: infections, right? Yes. Yeah. And the interesting thing about The cell that we look for in the pemphigus diagnosis, which is the acantholytic keratinocyte, which is the prematurely lifted keratinocyte um, in the layers of the epidermis, um, it can um, be falsely diagnosed in a patient that has a really severe bacterial pyderma because there there can be a breakdown of those cell layers of the epidermis because of a a really bad infection, um, especially with the staph bacteria. And then you can also have um, an infection with dermatophy- dermatophytics uh, species, trichophyton, where you um, do see that same lifting, premature lifting of the skin cells, because um, those bonds of those skin cells are broken down by dealing with trichophyton and So you're dealing with maybe bacteria that can kind of mimic um, the presentation of pemphigus and that you see those acantholytic keratinocytes, which we'll talk about more with the biopsy detail, but then you can also have, um, you know, ringworm species. So bacteria and reworm can um, mimic the finding, the cytologic finding, you know, associated with pemphigus. But in the biopsy, especially our problems really kind of boil down to how the biopsy is collected. And if you miss part of the tissue, which actually is that crust that sits right on top of the lesions, or an open, uh, uh, an intact pustule. Uh, if we don't get those types of lesions, you can miss the, biops- um, the histopathology diagnosis of pemphigus foliaceus.
0: So that is something that I have, again, over the years, I've heard different advice about where to take those biopsy samples. I've heard you should take them at the center of the lesion or at the periphery because that's more active, or you should try to even incorporate some normal skin. Do you have opinions on, on where you, know, you should place your biopsies and how many biopsies should you take in order to maximize your chance of getting a diagnosis?
1: Well, that's a great question because especially with hope being so diffusely affected, um, she had areas of her skin that could have been erythematous and irritated. And she definitely had a pyoderma when I met her. So we could have had allergy areas that were, um, biopsied. And then, you know, she could have had areas that were more specific for pemphigus. So when I look at a patient, um, I'm looking, at, I'm looking for primary lesions. I'm looking for secondary lesions. And my primary lesion for pemphigus especially would be um, a papule, but more so a pustule. So when I see a pustule, it's like a dermatology, like, you know, um, a celebration, you know, we're just so happy to see pustules. <clears throat> so if we're looking for um, that primary lesion and that pustule is present, um, I try to take care not to pop the pustule before I biopsy it. And really I'm not trying to be sterile. I mean, derm biopsies really aren't sterile many times. We don't describe them as sterile, um, meaning there's not prep work to make sure that the skin is scrubbed and cleaned um, because our sample's right on the surface. And then also if a patient has hair, which some patients don't have very much hair when they come in with you know skin disease, um, if the patient has hair, we're only clipping it short because a, a, a surgical prep for the skin, especially of, of an animal is to, you know, clip that hair really short against the, you know, the skin and that can remove some of our lesion. Um, so when I look at a patient that has a, a pustule, I'm taking a lot of care and I'm not clipping the hair um, very short. I'm just maybe cutting it. If the pustule is underneath the hair, if I can find one, you know, around the hair, um, cause they kind of hide sometimes um, I'm also taking care not to clean it. Um, again, which sounds maybe uh, confusing for the and, you little know, A little bit not, counterintuitive. In, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and also I'm, I'm picking a punch biopsy that makes sense for the pustule. I want to keep that pustule intact. So I will say on the average, I really don't use a 4-millimeter punch. Most of the time I will use an 8-millimeter punch, and that's our biggest punch um, short of doing excisional biopsies. But if I'm going to submit a sample from a, a especially a large dog, um, and I have a lot of different lesions, and they're big lesions, I want an 8 millimeter biopsy punch. Um, I want as much information from that patient as I possibly can get. Now, pustules can appear in weird places also, like um, not just haired skin, but on foot pads. So when we're dealing with foot pads and we have a pustule, um, it's a little bit harder because I also feel bad doing a punch on a foot pad that's going to have a weight put right back on it when they go home because they're walking on all four feet most likely. And so I I try to go for a pustule that's on a margin of a foot pad or maybe on the carpal pad instead of a primary weighted pad. But the pustule can be, you know, punch biopsy off off of um, a digital foot pad as well. And I try to stay maybe closer to the six millimeter punch just for... The goal is to get my sample, but not to harm the patient. And I, I always do feel really bad doing the punches of the foot pads. Um, so the pustule is as much as you can fit it, into the pus- fit it into the punch biopsy and get as much sample as possible. The big thing with the pustule really also is yes, the cells you know underneath that layer that make the pustule are so important. But if you punch and the majority of your um, discharge doesn't ooze out, because there are some patients that have really big pustules, so if you can maybe catch the edge of a pustule versus going down in the middle of a pustule if it's really big. I'm talking, there are patients I've seen, you know, two, three centimeter pustules and you're like, what do I do with this? But if you go on the edge of that one um, and try to just punch and then immediately get it into formalin, um, I think you retain as much as you can. But I, I do try to get smaller pustules. I do t- try to also share information with my pathologist. Hey, I did a cytology on a pustule. There's a cells. It is a sterile pustule, you know, and so that guides them as well. A lot of information about pustules is, is more the merrier for sure. Um, otherwise, when I have a crust on a papule or a crusted pustule, I knew it was a pustule recently. Um, a crusted nodule. I had a patient today, I feel like um, I'm going to get a pemphigus foliaceous diagnosis on, but the dog had more of like nodules and plaques, which was a little bit unusual. Um, And so that patient, I was trying to get the oldest crust, you know, with the older lesion and then the newest, you know, um, lesion with, you know, a a big heavy crust. And there's going to be variations of, of crust, but the crust, can't be prepped and cleaned off and can't be trimmed off with the hair. So you're just cutting hair short versus trimming the hair like a, you know, with a clipper blade. Um, And we're not cleaning it. We're keeping the, the, the crust on top of the lesion. And I'm trying to get a really big biopsy punch there too so I can get as much crust as possible. And there are patients that are gonna have these two, three centimeter nodules and plaques. And maybe I'll go for a smaller one that's newer you know, um, to get all of the sample into the punch biopsy. I don't necessarily say to go to a center of a lesion if it's, if it's big. Um, the center of an ulcer is going to be an ulcer. You might lose some of the information from it. So we try to get, cautiously stated, I try to get maybe the edge of a lesion, but I want to show the pathologist that I do have an ulcer. So I think the edges of ulcerative lesions are much better. But if that ulcer had a crust, I keep the crust on it. I try to find a lesion that had the crust. And many times I just go right down to the center, I get um, all of it in the punch if I can, or find one that I can fit into it. Um, there's a lot of other lesions that can come with these patients, but many times it is the pustule or the crusted, you know, uh, patch or plaque or or papule. Um, and then, with, you know, Hope's situation, she was extremely erythematous. She had foot pad uh, issues. So we were just taking samples from everywhere. And I usually take at least three. Uh, I think with her case, we ended up taking six biopsies. Wow. <laughs> Including okay. a foot pad. She, her foot pads were, yeah. I think I have, uh, there should be a photo of her foot pads in the article.
0: Yes, I think there was. Her poor feet looked so Which painful. was an anatomic issue as well. Yeah. So she wasn't,
1: uh, uh, you know.
0: <laughs> what about timing of taking these biopsies? You know, especially if, if um, you're seeing these patients after they've been seen by someone else or after you yourself have, have put them on some medications, like, should you have a washout period after steroids? Should you take them after they've been on a course of antibiotics? What What
1: is the best timing? In some of our patients that we find a bacterial pyoderma on the first visit and we're Suspicious that these lesions need to be biopsied because we're dealing with something more than pyoderma or more than allergies, which I don't typically biopsy a patient when I have a strong suspicion they have allergy. So if we have a patient that like has pyoderma, for example, and the lesion is just so essentially clouded by the pyoderma, I want to treat those many times, get them cleaned up, um, bathe, even you know we're going to do a lot of care to make sure that infection's cleaned up. And then we're rechecking them many times while they're being treated for infection, while they're on the, hopefully the right, you know, type of antibiotic and are using, you know, the owners are using frequent topical therapy. And if those lesions are persisting and the patient is there that day on antibiotics and the topical, you know, therapies prescribed and and the lesion is not changed and I don't have it on steroids, especially um, as, you know, as an example, I'll do a, a biopsy while they're on antibiotics and not necessarily need to get them off. Because I know that when I first saw them, if I have this information that they had a pyoderma and, and I wanted to treat that first, now I have a cleaner sample for the pathologist. Because pathologists are going to get, unfortunately, that bacteria, like I said, it just kind of clouds the process. It clouds the, the findings. And if you have a deep pyoderma causing these crater-like ulcers in some patients and you know, just really nasty uh, dermatitis and you clean that part up, but they still have an active disease that is just outside the norm, um, then our pathologist would be much happier reading um, the primary cause, you know, um, getting that that dermis or, or you know, subcutis um, with less ferunculosis caused by the pyoderma. And they can really see, you know, that, that, primary inflammation or, or the target of the inflammation, especially. Those nasty pydermas, especially deep pyodermas and furunculosis. many times you just don't get to see the quality of, of the dermis because it's all blown out in that case. And many times the, the epidermis is not present in, you know, a nasty bacterial infection mm-hmm. because of the pustules and the ulcers that are, you know, formed. Um, otherwise, you know, when we have patients, like I had a patient today that just came off of prednisone, three days ago in prep for the appointment today. And we did a biopsy three days off of prednisone. And I would say we all kind of learn maybe they should be off prednisone for two weeks, you know, to get the best sample. Well, that patient, and I do suspect he has um, pemphigus foliaceous, that patient um, had an active pustule and I found a ton of acantholytic cells today. And that was three days off of prednisone. And so that was a great finding today for that patient. And hopefully the biopsy reflects that finding and we can help that patient. But there are some times where they come in on prednisone and their lesions are quiet. They are in different stages. There are more healed lesions than, you know, and encrusted dry lesions than there are new primary lesions. So sometimes it just depends on the initial presentation. If we're missing something that we want to biopsy and we know could be there, we might have them come back, you know, in a couple of days or a week. But if they're really sick, you know, and in and, and pain, new lesions are happening regardless of being on prednisone, we're going to biopsy them right there, you know, versus wait for it.
0: One of the other things about this case that was just a little surprising to me was with the diagnosis was the age of the patient. I guess I really didn't mm-hmm. consider pemphigus um, to be common in such a young dog. Is there a median age of onset for pemphigus foliasis? Are there any breed or sex predilections that that I should be aware of?
1: So, Typically, you wouldn't see it in a 15-month-old dog. Um, well, I feel better then. <laughs> right. Now, that said, I've had a couple of young dogs present. Um, I can't say they were in the past month, and I can't say when they were in the past five years, but or in, in since my residency even. But every now and then, we'll get a young dog. Um, and what we look for in the young dog is a trigger of inflammation, call it possible vaccine reaction. We always wonder, you know, if something that was given at some point uh has triggered so a drug reaction even. I don't want to just implicate vaccine, but if we dig hard enough, you know, or 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 there's an obvious something in the recent background like an antibiotic to implicate a drug. Um the the young dog um absolutely is important to consider an autoimmune disease. Uh the young dog like a year old, you know, or or less than or very close to like hope was 15 months old. We're presumably 15 months old. There was, like I said, a little bit of a splotchy uh, history on her initial presentation uh, to the vet, but um, having a young dog also maybe deal with um, like puppy strangles or they're dealing with their own, um, hopefully immune development and getting immunity from their, from their, um, you know, mom. Um, So depending on what has happened for that really young dog, um, if they unfortunately just, you know, have a bad go of it in their first 12 to 18 months, you know, their immune system, you know, may get out of whack for lack of a better description. And we might deal with an autoimmune disease. Um, but I think our biggest, our biggest group of dogs dealing with Pemphigus foliaceus or, um, these, the average presentation for autoimmune immune mediated skin disease really is our middle age, you know, um, dogs or middle-aged to older dogs. Um, and there is kind of a discussion point that maybe allergy dogs are more prone um, to autoimmune disease, but I wouldn't say that. Uh, hard fast, I would say we do have so many allergy dogs and it's not uncommon that the dogs that get autoimmune disease probably have a history of allergy. So I don't wanna say that, you know, every allergy every pemphigus foliaceous patient has allergies, or that allergies causes pemphigus foliaceous, but allergies are super common, and pemphigus foliaceous is the most common autoimmune disease, uh, autoimmune skin disease that we deal with. Um, and so, on that note, we also see a lot of bulldogs with allergies. We see a lot of labradors with allergies. We see um, a lot of different breeds, uh, of course, represented some more than others. And the more common presentation with pemphigus ends up being uh, our labradors. Our um, bulldogs. Um, I do feel like we see, um, and on the list of, of concern is also, um, like our Cocker Spaniel, um, Dachshund. There's a few breeds that do stand out for Pemphigus or you see represented more often, but we have a lot of patients. Um, and I wouldn't say, I think some stand out because they're sometimes a little bit more difficult to treat or they have their own nuances. Like Hope was a very special case. And I I do see Pemphigus foliaceus represented in bulldogs more than um, I'd like like to. They're just difficult cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and bulldogs have their own anatomical issues um, with their folds, their feet, their mm-hmm. skin folds. And when they get Pemphigus, it's, it's not pretty, <laughs> unfortunately. Oh. I feel like it's more diffuse in them.
0: There are some other diseases, though, that that can cause, you know, pustules, right, in in young dogs. What are some other oh, yes. differentials that you were thinking of um, when Hope came
1: in? Well, and Hope's presentation was not pretty um, from a standpoint of, um, especially her age, you know, so it was so severe, but it was so diffuse. Um, and so autoimmune disease was on my list, but being, the, you know, the young age, it's, even though there was... Um, there were some differentials, you know, already considered. Uh, allergies were already considered, and she had a biopsy that supported allergies. Um, and we have young dogs that are very severely affected with allergies. Um, but if she had allergies, there's definitely something more that was going on. So especially the pustule and the young dog, we have to immediately consider um demodicosis. And I have had patients that um maybe not as often anymore because of the isoxazolines that treat. Um, that wonderfully treat, uh, Demodex, but I've had patients come in where they're just dripping pus off of pustules, uh, all over their body. And it's amazing how diffusely and severely affected a patient can be with demodicosis that's untreated. And that goes back to the immunity and, you know, and, and the young patient, why are they suffering so bad with that, that parasite? Um, so that's very individual, but, and I feel like we have more success with those cases now, but, um, if we don't find a Demodex patient in those pustules, we're looking at a pyoderma, of course, we're looking for bacteria. And are they resistant bacteria, even in the young patient, even in, I've had a couple patients present with um, puppy pyoderma or even um, possible consideration for like juvenile cellulitis, that was maybe a mild case. And I'm getting resistant bacteria off these patients and they're 12 weeks old, you know, they're five months old and it's, amazing unfortunately how severe bacterial pyoderma can be even in a very young animal um for whatever reason you know we have to sort through that reason why it's a problem for that patient individually um and there is an an odd you know differential that we had on her list uh, or i should say it, it got added to the quiz um and her presentation was just so severe um And I've unfortunately heard of, especially with my husband being a radiologist, um, that skin cancer, especially cutaneous lymphoma, can affect patients um, or in general, you know, neoplasias and cancers um, can affect patients younger than we want. And I have never seen a patient younger than a year, younger than two years with cutaneous lymphoma, but it doesn't mean it's not possible. And it's so important when we see a patient, no matter their age, that we do consider our differential list uh, broadly And then we let that history and the patient, hopefully, that presentation of young age and the diagnostics that we perform um, scale down that differential list. But if Hope was three years old, five years old, 10 years old, her lesions immediately would have been more considered, um, a higher differential would have been cutaneous lymphoma for her because of how severe and how many plaques and just that the initial presentation was was much different than expected for Pemphigus. Um and so it, even though I, I shouldn't be seeing the aplasia in that young of a dog and it is an unusual differential to have for her uh, because of the plaque lesions that she had um which were different, you know, in general for her case. But uh, I had to have some unique differentials on my list so I didn't get clouded, you know, and didn't um, lose focus, you know, on, on what could be present. You just never know.
0: Are you on track to hit your CE goals? Clinician's Brief has more than 60 hours of practical race-approved CE, perfect for catching you up and keeping you up on requirements. Whether you prefer to read, watch, or listen, Clinician's Brief CE is on demand and always affordable. Start earning CE today at cliniciansbrief.com CE. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, the pathophysiology of pemphigus foliaceus. You know, you talked about, we talked about acantholytic cells, you know, to, they've always were were described for me as that like fried egg appearance. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I, that has to do with, right, how they're formed, right? How they, Mm -hmm. they lift up. And so Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit about that, about what happens with pemphigus to cause those acantholytic cells to form?
1: So the epidermis is made of layers and when from the ground up. And so the base layer um, is our connection, uh, that junction, um, basically that starts from the epidermis down to the dermis. So there's a base layer of the epidermis and then uh, all the skin cells are made in that base layer Um, and they work themselves up over time, um, kind of on average like 20 Three to twenty-seven days. Um, Don't quote me on that, but somewhere in the less than a month, you will get a skin cell produced at the base layer that will come all the way up to the top and become um, a stratified, you know, uh, corneocyte, or or basically that you know dried keratinocyte um, that no longer has a nucleus. And so, when it's first formed, it does have a nucleus, which is very prominent um, as it's growing, or maturing, and there's different functions of each layer of the epidermis. But when um, pemphigus occurs, what happens is it's an autoimmune reaction. So uh, the body is mounting a reaction to the kind of averagely describe it as the brick and mortar is uh, a visual description of the epidermis. So you have all these bricks, all these layers that are stacked. And the mortar is the glue that holds all those individual bricks together, and so pemphigus foliaceus is um, an autoimmune disease where those junctions, where that mortar is, you know, attaching those bricks, um, it's basically breaking down that connection, you know, to those bricks. Um, so you're taking uh, the base layer is still intact with pemphigus foliaceus, which is very important because there are some autoimmune diseases that will affect the base layer of the epidermis. But the cells that are trying to mature and go up um, to become stratified, you know, uh, epithelial cells, they kind of midway through the epidermis, you're getting that attack on those um, younger um, keratinocytes and they are called a keratinocytes. They still have a nucleus um, and they are um, basically those junctions, like I said, are broken down. So what happens is as those cells are supposed to be connected with the mortar, they start to separate. Um, pustule then forms, so you have this bubble um, forming where you have neutrophils, eosinophils, usually not any bacteria, um, but you have this inflammatory infiltrate and then these cells have now separated you know, from their connections, um, which is why the intact pustule and the crust is extremely important with the biopsy um, because you need to get everything under the hood of the, the pustule or the crust, um, which includes that inflammatory population, but those skin cells as they prematurely lift. Um, and the junctions and and those connections that are broken down are desmoglion and desmocollin. Um, nobody needs to know that for everyday discussion with an owner. And that is board study information that I... You know, you're going to put that aside too. Um, I never say those words to owners, but those junctions, uh, those connections between the keratinocytes, um, that's, that's what's attacked. Yeah. That's where um, all the action is. Yeah. It's not the cell itself. It's the skin cell. It ends up being those, that literal mortar connection, you know, uh, is separated.
0: And you had um, mentioned a couple of triggers, you know, f- or precipitating factors uh, for pemphigus. Definitely some medications are commonly, um, you know, associated with pemphigus. I think there was a topical flea and tick medication several years ago that was, um, think, uh, yes. <laughs> too? Yeah. Yeah. There, there were a, a couple, couple of them, there. but, but there's others, I think Just as well. Right like, <laughs> um, Uh, you know, I believe sulfonamides, um, you know, do you have a list of, of antibiotics that you typically worry about?
1: Um, my list is, is not like a daily worry. Like I'm going to send these drugs home and I expect a reaction to occur because that's super important because I don't want people to feel like they can't use an antibiotic. For example, the patient I had today may be reactive to an antibiotic they had in the past um, in that cephalosporin family.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's what I'm working through with that patient. Um, and in hope situation, you know, we may never know the exact trigger. She was in intact and her estrus may have, uh, <clears throat> you know, triggered that, but she was also being treated for pyodermas <clears throat> with, not with a cephalosporin, but my list usually includes um, a cephalosporin, um, or that group beta-lactams. Um, if I'm considering the antibiotic as a possible cause of drug reaction, uh, or a trigger for pantheas. Um, I feel like cephalexin is just so commonly used, so I don't know that it's um, it's like if if we had always from the beginning used you know X Y Z uh, antibiotic would we have seen that more? But the cephalosporins definitely are on the list more often, um, and then the sulfonamides, um, which I don't use very often, even in resistant cases, I just. You kind of learn, you know, over the years, like, what you maybe shouldn't or shouldn't use, and you become patterned to that. Um, You just either don't take a risk or just try to avoid it and do something else. With the skin, we can maybe try to avoid things and use more topicals. So um, truly with sulfonamides, I I typically just try to avoid them because I feel like I've heard of more reactions than I care to even try to, um, you know, combat. And so whether it's pemphigus foliaceous or other cutaneous adverse drug reactions, Uh, The cephalosporins, the beta lactams, the sulfonamides are of more concern, you know, for me. Um, It is important, though, no matter the age of the patient, um, to consider uh, recent medication use, recent vaccines, recent topical um, or systemic flea, you know, in tech prevention. Anything that's ingested, anything that's put on the body, in the body. um, I've had a couple cases, I do feel like with autoimmune disease, that something in their allergic, history, you know, is a part of their trigger. Like I said, I can't say that allergy, every pemphigus dog has allergies and it's always allergies, you know, related, but I I do think a lot of our pemphigus, if we dig through our histories deeper with pemphigus uh, patients, we sometimes, uh, or many times can find an allergy. Are they causing each other? I can't say in every case. Um, Or is the allergy causing pemphigus? Not necessarily. We do have patients that have neoplasia. Um, Or dealing with other conditions outside of neoplasia, uh, systemic illness, and they're getting triggered, systemic trigger, um, metabolic diseases, you know, so we're looking for, uh, in our older, older patients, you know, um, is the trigger systemic? Do we need to do met checks, um, you know, lymph node aspirates and abdominal ultrasounds, chest x-rays, you know, and and those are discussions we have uh, with every case. But as the patient gets older, you know, why did this happen? Why is this? even though maybe they're middle-aged to older-aged dogs that are normal for pemphigus um, or normally observed in pemphigus, are we missing something uh, as an obvious trigger that maybe the owner didn't know about?
0: Kind of along those same lines, um, if you have an animal that you do diagnose with pemphigus and you're treating, what about future vaccinations? Um, Do you hold off on those because they have a history of autoimmune disease?
1: I say on the average case that I treat, and it, maybe it's just a pattern I've developed, um, I feel like the owners are leery during the process of treatment, especially trying to induce remission because they're they're unsure about the disease itself. They're just really trying to get their pet under control. Patient, you know, Our patients, we're just trying to get them in remission. So we're really cautious about everything and, and really wanting to limit the extras for the patient. And as soon as they feel better, I feel like that's when the vaccine question comes up. Uh, or they get a reminder card, um, Hey, I'm due for a vaccine. Or, and sometimes the veterinarians will reach out to us. Many times we do get phone calls from the vets when they're at their annual visit, or they need to do a recheck for pemphigus. Uh, for example, like in their vet's office, you know, and, and we co-manage a lot of these patients. So when, when the vaccine question comes up, if I don't have a direct, as direct as I can make a link to a vaccine with any of our autoimmune dogs, um, if I don't have a direct connection or, or, a you know, a major concern about a, a specific vaccine, I usually say, okay, let's change one thing at a time. If we're not making any major drug changes, let's say the dog is on, um, prednisone and cyclosporin and doing really well. And I was going to maybe change the prednisone dose. And then this vaccine needed to be given, let's say the dog needed to be boarded or it was five years over two for rabies or whatever the situation is. Um, they got a new puppy in the house. Um, I would rather they, as, as you know, in our whole team, you know, the vet and the owner and us feel comfortable with one change at a time. So go ahead and give a vaccine. And I would prefer one, give one, make sure that, you know, this patient now in the state that it is, you know, uh, immunologically, make sure it can handle the one vaccine, whatever, which one is more important at that visit. And don't change the prednisone. Don't change the cyclosporine at that time. Keep the dog stable as much as we can. Give the vaccine. And then let's wait two weeks. I don't know. Just kind of a broad recommendation. Give it a couple of weeks. See how the dog does. Because with any drug change I'm typically making, I'm giving the dog, the patient, a couple of weeks to decide if it handles that change that I'm going to make. Um, I just feel like I I try to respect the immune system as much as I can. It'd be. It's getting hit by all different you know, angles and we're just trying to calm down an autoimmune reaction. So I, I just prefer to be a little bit more cautious. When they're very, very stable and long-term managed patients, I think the owners get a really good idea of how they can um, judge that and the veterinarians get more comfortable with it. But the newer diagnosed ones, I tend to wait until they're stable. You know, when that's, they make those changes.
0: Oh, that's really good insight. And it actually kind of leads nicely into talking about treatment. So since that was the next thing on our list, um, you had mentioned prednisone and cyclosporin. So are those really the most common immunosuppressive medications? Or are there other things that you're reaching for very frequently when we have a case of pemphigus foliaceous?
1: Well, in my residency, because I I was trained between uh, 2011 and 2013, Um, there were papers, there were book chapters that described, um, treatments like gold salts, for example. And I personally have never seen, or I've been around a patient, um, administered gold salts. I don't have any experience with gold salts, but that was like, then there was information and maybe some experience, you know, still floating around. So I had no exposure to that. And, but when I started also prednisone was still, um, very common and still, you know, and, and to this day, very common um, source of, um, of improvement for a lot of patients, but it, it can be used as anti-inflammatory to immune suppressive uh, doses, depending on the patient with a lot of success. Um, but that was very much in my residency, you know, part of the discussion. Prednisone and here's some old stuff we used to do. But that secondary drug was um, discussed very quickly in all the patients that I diagnosed. You need to get your patient on prednisone to induce remission. And the discussion was then, what's your secondary drug? How do you then get them off prednisone? Or how do you co-manage them with prednisone so that you don't have the long-term side effects of prednisone? And in my residency, the discussion many times included azathioprine. Now, I don't use azathioprine as much now or as much anymore because I, I really try to Um, I try to use a lot of different medications when I get used to all of them. And I think time, it just takes time to get used to uh, different therapies. But in some patients, I try to give one medication, they don't agree, you know, stomach-wise. Another patient, they don't agree, um, maybe financially. Um, If in azathioprine situation, when I've used azathioprine, my recommendations for rechecking blood work are much more intense than, for example, now I'm using cyclosporin and, um, mycophenolate more and the recommendations to recheck blood work, um, are not as frequent based on how the drugs work. And so azathioprine has, um, more, um, risk, you know, to the bone marrow and the liver, um, just in our patients than, um, the short term, I should say, like in the first four weeks to eight weeks or, or the first, you know, six to 12 weeks, azathioprine is a concern for bone marrow suppression and, and uh, hepatotoxicity or, or liver enzyme changes. And so I'm very strict about azathioprine and that goes, um, along with, you know, getting blood work frequently. So some clinic, um, some patients, excuse me, can't come um, back for frequent rechecks, um, or the cost of the recheck and the blood work is difficult. And I can't say that the cost of other drugs is is so much better and, and uh, eliminates the cost of blood work, um, but in some situations, it's, it's patients coming into your you know into your clinic, um, and it just ends up being a cost reality for clients. They've probably already been through some level of cost you know uh, prior to coming to us, even and the biopsies are a cost. So the decision for the medication through my residency and now has always been um, how do I get the patient under control as soon as possible with the least amount of side effects? And prednisone doesn't work for every patient in many ways, but it can work for a lot of patients, um, especially initially. So I always start with, or I tend to always start with prednisone or a close derivative um, like dexamethasone or methylprednisolone. It just depends on the dog of how severe they are too, what my dose range ends up being. And then Lately, I don't necessarily grab for acythiabrine. I've been using um, cyclosporin, modified cyclosporin, I should say, um, brand name Etopica, but we do use generic modified cyclosporin, and we do use, um, I tend to use mycophenolate as well. And the side effects, if you like, as long as we watch the dosing for the patient, um, tend to be tolerable. And... Um, Our technicians are very comfortable with the medications as well, so it is also going back to um, educating the owner, um, the cost and availability of the medications, and uh, how often the rechecks need to be based on the medications. Unfortunately, prednisone is the fast acting medication, and all the secondary uh, immune-suppressive therapies tend to work after four weeks, maybe eight weeks. So we do have to use that steroid and then we do have to wait for the secondary medication to start helping, um, which can be a tough period of time. Once you do get it under control, though, um,
0: what is, what's a reasonable approach to tapering these these dogs off? Or are you letting people know right from the very beginning that these these medications may be
1: lifelong? I typically describe the first six months as medication heavy. Um, some patients respond within two weeks and that prednisone is is a game changer. I never promised that. And, and it really just depends on the presentation. Hope was diffusely affected and extremely itchy as well. So she had allergy on top of it, but she had so many details to her case that were different than a lot of our pemphigus presentations. Uh, <clears throat> so for her situation, I definitely said, we are going to be on medication lifelong on, on some level. And my goal for every patient is to use prednisone to induce remission and then to taper it, whether it's quick or slow. And that patient dictates the taper for sure. Um, the intolerance of steroids in some patients is, is um, it's amazing how a dog will go home and never show a side effect of prednisone after months. Um, and, and the clients have no problems with it. Um, dogs never pee in the house. Like we have no problems. And then uh, months and months of therapy, doing great, whatever the dose is. And then you have patients that go home and within two days the dog is in eating cabinets and you know biting the other dog and and you know urinating everywhere and eventually as you know muscle wasting and you know it's just amazing the um the breadth of of side effects that can come from prednisone and every patient responds to prednisone or steroids i should say differently so our patient absolutely dictates that taper regarding side effects Um, there are some situations where we use prednisone and then have to go on to maybe methylprednisolone dexamethasone, triamcinolone to reduce side effect, but we still need the drug. And so if I'm really trying to get remission, you know, um, induce remission for an autoimmune disease, I really try to get that client on board to hold on as long as possible. And usually in the first two weeks, maybe I'll make a dose change if the patient shows improvement, but really that ends up being because my secondary medication is on board and I'm really optimistic it doesn't always work out but i'm hopeful that in the first four weeks of using prednisone that the secondary medication will start showing benefit but there are times when we have a really hard time using a steroid um at our higher end dosing maybe high anti-inflammatory or the lower end of um immune suppression and we have to taper that that patient off a steroid faster than we want um and that's where topical steroids end up being um Hopefully in, a, you know, in adjunctive therapy, if there's few lesions or, or not diffuse lesions like hope, the facial pemphigus patients, um, whether we're using topical steroid or tacrolimus even, mm-hmm. um, depending on where they can lick it off, you know, <laughs> uh, if it's on their knees, you know, n- uh, nose pad or, or face. Um, it, it's, it ends up being so individual to the patient. Um, the template is steroids to induce remission and then a secondary drug to take over steroids. Once they are in remission, if that's possible with both drugs, I tend to make a dose change on prednisone every two weeks. Okay. I don't know. It's just something I try to follow. And I had somebody tell me a long time ago, reduce the dose by 25% 5%. every two to four weeks. <laughs> you know? And so, I don't know. I try. If it's a twice-a-day prednisone, I maybe start with the evening dose or one, pick one dose. Pick a dose cut it in half, pick a dose, remove the dose, you know, and I try to stay on that dose change. So change the evening dose every time. And then eventually we'll just have a morning dose left over. And then maybe we'll have the ability to change the morning dose. Um, I think owners, we try to connect with a, a basic approach and make it simple. These aren't simple cases, <laughs> you know, but and we've stressed compliance. You know, we're not, we're going to help you. If you can help us, but we're going to, this will fail, or it'll be extremely hard, we're going to come out of remission if we don't have that compliance, at least with communication, if not in the office. So the last thing that I want to talk about before I let you go today was actually
0: a particular combination that you used mm-hmm. in this case, um, because I have heard that this is a no-no, um, but you actually used um, uh, um mm-hmm. you know, uh, Apoquil, with prednisone in, and azathioprine, I guess all three in this case. Um, but it, it's it's really the mm. oclacitinib and the prednisone that I kind of wanted to focus on. So, what factors, you know, contributed to your decision to use that combination
1: in this case? She was one of my worst pemphigus patients I've ever seen, because the other thing about hope, like I mentioned a couple times, is was her allergy. Um, I've had heretic. Um, I've had the itchy pemphigus patient. Um, she was very different. Um, there are patients that we feel, for example, prednisone just doesn't work anymore or, or you know, or we exhaust a medication for either allergy or, or other things, or they come out of remission. And so now that medication was working, but now it appears like it's failing. And <clears throat> because I saw her often, which was great. She was very close to the practice that we were, um, we saw her in our satellite office in Washington, and the practice that she went to work, you know, with her owner was very close, so we could get her in pretty frequently. Um, I tried to go with my kind of template of I'm going to treat her pemphigus, um, and I, I used steroids, and I think Hope is still on steroids, um, ongoing. Um, but she she needed paritic uh, paritic care. And I was hoping to induce remission with prednisone and uh, use modified cyclosporin. I was very comfortable with modified cyclosporin at the time um, for the average pemphigus patient. Um, it doesn't work in every patient. Um, I do feel like if we can get a good price, unfortunately, the drug is more expensive, you know, by brand name for dogs. But when we get a generic, if we can find the price, keep the GI um, keep the GI upset under control, then we can most time work. Hand in hand with modified cyclosporin, and do well with our patient. Um, she didn't respond to it the way I wanted her to, and so like through the whole description of her medication list, I we ended up changing um, from um, prednisone and modified cyclosporin to prednisone, modified cyclosporin, and azathioprine. And so unfortunately, I had to kind of transition her off one onto the other. And what what was happening is prednisone was shining as our benefit. Uh, And the other medications just unfortunately were appearing to fail. Um, I don't think it was, I don't know that they had a chance to succeed for as severe as she was. Um, This, this dog was followed very, very close. And she had um, so many lesions and the activity, the the severity of the lesions, her foot pads, especially. And I didn't want her on prednisone uh, ongoing, but um, every time I tried to taper her off, she would either flare with her benthagus, um, meaning she'd come in and I would think she had a pyoderma lesion. We would do a cytology on a pustule and she had acantholytic cells, no pyoderma. Sometimes she would have pyoderma on other lesions. So she would have a mix of, a, um, a bacterial pyoderma that they were constantly bathing, which was wonderful. They were wonderful, um, you know, for her care, her client or her, our clients, um, her, owners were very diligent, you know, to keep her skin clean, because I didn't want to use the antibiotic in her. And we, she had an MRSP, so we had mm-hmm. limited, um, you know, options. So we're using prednisone, trying to reduce secondary infections. We're using azathioprine, um, now after transitioned off of cyclosporine, um, trying to taper that prednisone, taper the prednisone. She gets severely itchy um, because she came back into our pollen season, unfortunately. So that's when we did add oclacitinib to a patient that was on two immune suppressive drugs and technically oclacitinib at the dose that she really did require was twice a day uh, is an immune suppressive drug. Mm-hmm. Um, her blood work was monitored so frequently. Again, nice thing about working in a vet office. Um, and her vet was on top of, you know, um, you know, lab work changes and we did, uh, flex, you know, as we needed to, we tried to adjust doses where we could. Um, and she really ended up settling into a, a combination of drugs that is unconventional, <laughs> um, prednisone at very low dosing. It is a very low dose, but it's still, it's still a good dose. It's still a, a you know, sub anti, I guess, um, just below anti-inflammatory dosing, um, some allergic patients do need prednisone ongoing, so I'm not surprised about it, but I needed it for the pemphigus. Then the azathioprine held her enough that it could keep the prednisone dose low, but unfortunately, her her allergic edge was not controlled. Her with allergy the really needed um, it. <laughs> And she absolutely needed that Apoquil. Uh, unfortunately, um, she ended up developing, and this is something I, I was concerned about, uh, with her young age and the lesions I initially saw, but she does have, um, multicentric lymphoma now. And I don't know, and I cannot say if the medications she was on had anything to do with that. Um, and again, we really don't know what age she was, Mm -hmm. assuming her age was correct at the time of presentation. Um, she is treated with her, um, regular veterinarian and uh, we spoke recently, but it wasn't in the past, you know, three or four months. I think it was before the new year. I do know that she had that, um, she was diagnosed with lymphoma, um, but she was feeling good and her skin was good. Um, I I don't want to say that like it's a compromise. Like, well, we got this under control and, you know, now she just has to deal with lymphoma. Well, Um, well, it's a
0: sad update, but at the same mm -hmm. time the you know, She came in to be relinquished for euthanasia, and so I think we you can take um, a lot of solace and really know that you gave her a lot of time. She had a wonderful devoted family, you know, or does have a wonderful devoted family, just like you said.
1: And so, so I think you know, taking away the positive from that, yeah. And there are patients that I've managed uh, for pemphigus foliaceous, bulldogs especially. They are just tough um that I, I can't i don't want to use the word fail it's not fair i think our clients are are referring vets Us, our technicians, uh, we take these cases so personally. Mm -hmm. They are so hard. They're hard on us because we see a patient, we see every bit of what they're dealing with on the surface. So when we see them at their recheck, we're seeing the side effects of prednisone sometimes on the surface, calcinosis cutis as a side effect of prednisone, the muscle wasting, the muscle uh, atrophy, the the tired patient, the belly patient, you know, you can see the effect of, of that one drug that maybe got them into Remission, um, but now they can't get off of it. And then you maybe see side effects or hear about side effects of the secondary drug. You know, maybe they have diarrhea all the time. Maybe they can't uh, afford the medication, so they can't use it. Maybe they're having um, changes on their blood work that, you know, are causing us to have to shift out of an, one medication to another. These are hard cases. And I've had patients that are euthanized earlier than you'd expect for their age. You know, a three year old dog with pemphigus and not lymphoma and we can't manage to get it under control and the side effects of drugs, you know, off balance, the quality of life. Um, And and as much as hope looks great in her photos, and I am very sad for her update. um, I do know, and I appreciate that, uh, that we did afford some great days and her, Mm -hmm. her owners were wonderful and her veterinarian did a wonderful job and co managed. And it's hard to take these personally, but Hopefully, you learn from every single case. Yep. I know it's not ideal to put prednisone and ocrelizumab together, apical together, and I know it's not ideal to have azathioprine on board either. And I've had patients that I, way back when, they um, were on prednisone for allergies, and when apical first came out, you know, a patient sitting in ICU with liver failure or something, I'm like, get them off the steroids. Let's try this new drug called Apoquil. and I think it has to be a. a big discussion points. It's so important. The client's on board. It's so important. Everybody's on board. Um, Quality of life measurement in our patients um, outweighs, you know, um, I can say it outweighs, you know, longevity, but we're looking for uh, solid, positive, great days with our pets. We're not looking for, um, you know, Guinness Book of World Records for our patient living 25 years, you know, or if a patient has some lesions that are managed with topical steroids to avoid prednisone you know we have so many patients that are in unique stories unique situations we have to flex and um change with every patient you yep. know. and everyone
0: is an opportunity to learn and and hopefully through you know your article in this podcast hope has just you know taught so many veterinarians so that's really exciting too <laughs>
1: I hope so. I mean, I don't encourage the the stacking of immune suppressives that we, we had to do with her and we took a big risk. Um, but I, I think as long as um, you're open with your client and we are available to communicate about that mm-hmm. too. If there are hard cases in practice, we want to hear about them um, because we are going through these hard cases too. These are hard. This mm-hmm. is very hard. Um, I struggled with, with Hope for a long time. She was a tough, Every time she came in, she was tough, and she got sassy. The better she felt, she was not always very nice, um, but she was fun to work with <laughs> for sure. I think she was. I mean, she was done with the process. I think yeah. after a while, I'm, I, she was I a think good.
0: She dog probably, she's, she's a she's
1: very, very good one. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That was all of my questions. You answered everything so thoroughly. It was a wonderful conversation, but before I left you go, no, it was great. Before I left you, let you go though. I have a little, some questions for you, some quiz questions for you. Um, Uh actually it's just a little game. It's just there. Would you rather questions? There are no right, right or wrong answers. All right. All right. So really quickly before we wrap up. Would you rather practice okay. without a microscope or without an, a video otoscope?
1: Without a video otoscope.
0: I figured you'd say that. Microscope is really <laughs> kind of essential for being a veterinarian. I can't smell what it is, really. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, would you rather star in a reality show about veterinary medicine or perform a live stand-up comedy routine about dermatology?
1: Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, would I rather... Probably live because I feel like I would just be so worried about the TV, like the recording part. I get more nervous about that. I feel like I'm off the cuff. I'm better live.
0: (laughs) I I actually like live things things better as as well.
1: well. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Would you rather find out the kitten that you were just snuggling is covered in ringworm or would you rather have a client that wants to show you their rash?
1: um I'd rather see the rash it sounds weird but I feel like it gives me some history clues (laughs) I've had rashes to me (laughs) recently too uh yeah I don't want to snuggle that ringworm Mm -mm. no no no. okay okay
0: last question if you were transformed into an animal would you rather be a dog or would you rather be a
1: cat I I thought I was gonna pick my animal um I'll go with the dog do I have to pick the breed (laughs) no no you don't have to pick the breed unless you want to (laughs) Yeah, I would say dog. I can't think of a breed. Uh, I feel like a Cavalier, but without the heart disease and all that stuff. Yeah. I love a good Cavalier. They are really sweet to snuggle. I would snuggle a Cavalier with ringworm. You would. (laughs) And on that note, (laughs) thanks so
0: much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed our episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts including a video version now available on YouTube. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also listen to or watch our podcast episodes on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts, or drop us a line at podcasts@briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ussery and hosted by Dr. Alyssa Watson.